Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, It would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. There's plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the, lo- with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake, where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. You may be seated. Our Father, God, help us to see the glory of your Son, the truth of your word, the love of the Father, the power of the Spirit, by your grace. Amen. Well, as I said, this whole chapter breaks up into basically two large chunks. There's the miracles first, Jesus feeding the 5,000, and then walking on the water. They are what John calls signs. Do you remember, Sean touched on this last week, what are the purpose of signs in the Gospel of John? What are they there to prove? John tells us at the end of his book that the signs are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah. So these miracles performed are not just magic tricks, they're not just for fun, they have an intention and a meaning. They are performed so that you may believe that Jesus is the Savior. That's why they're there. That's why they're there in John 6. There are two signs that Jesus performs, feeding the 5,000 or more, and walking on water. They are there so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They're also there in John 6 to set up the discourse that's going to come later in the conversation that Jesus is going to have with many of his disciples and followers. So we'll get to that in a second. But quickly, I want to walk through these two miracles where Jesus shows he is the Messiah of God. First, the the feeding of the 5,000. What did you notice about the context? What time is it? It is near Passover. Passover, by this time in Israel, had become kind of a nationalistic holiday. It was a time of anticipation for the people of Israel. It looked back to how God had delivered the Israelites out of Egypt through Moses. And it looked forward to how God would deliver and save Israel once again. It was a time of anticipation that maybe God would send another like Moses. That was the promise of the Old Testament, that one day a prophet like Moses would come and save Israel. The Israelites. So there's a lot of anticipation now. Jesus has done miracles, a lot of excitement around him. Crowds are gathered. It says 5,000 men. This would be uh, 
only men that that word refers to, so there are more than 5,000 people, because if you add in women and children, there are probably over 10,000 people gathered together. Men are named, one commentator thinks, maybe just as a hint towards if Jesus wanted to have an army, if he wanted 5,000 men, he had a lot of men at his disposal. He had a lot of men of fighting age. If he wanted to amass soldiers and take back the kingdom by force, well, he had the power and the ability to hear. He had 5,000 men at his disposal. They're gathered together. He's teaching. It's getting late. They need to eat. He sets up one of his disciples with a question. When I read this, I think of Admiral Akbar from Star Wars. It's a trap, right? That famous line. Jesus is trapping his disciples, setting them up with a question. I think Philip lived near here. That's what one commentator said. So maybe Philip would know the local layout. He would know the good restaurants. So Jesus says, hey, how are we going to feed all these people, Philip? And he says, I don't know. Andrew, maybe with a sense of hopelessness, says, uh, here's this boy with some fish and some bread. And we know what happens next, don't we? Jesus, like a good Christian, prays before the meal. He gives thanks to God for his provision. And he starts distributing bread and fish. And I don't know how the miracle happened exactly. I don't know where the multiplication took place, whether it was in Jesus' hands as he was parceling it out or whether it was as people took from the bread. I don't know, but it was like drinking from a water bottle that never went empty. Multiplied and unending food, unending provision. This week, one of our own children uh, in the church, she was talking to her parents. Is it one of my kids? Another smart young gal in our church. It's contemplating the power of God, and she said, God could snap his fingers and have a bag of party-sized Doritos in front of him. <laughs> it's an insightful young lady. Jesus would be great at a Super Bowl party. Right? Just provide unending food at his power. And that's what he does here. There are 12 baskets of food left over, one for each disciple. Maybe that's symbolic of the fullness of the people of Israel. Maybe it's just because that's how many disciples there were collecting. They had 12 baskets. But the point is there's an overabundance of food, and Jesus provided miraculously. So, so what's the point of all this? He does the miracle. What's the significance? Why did Jesus do this and they want to make him king? I think it goes beyond just the fact that they like food, although certainly that's part of it. When you hear of a man providing bread for thousands of Israelites who are hungry, what do you think of? You who know your Old Testament, what are they near? What are they celebrating? The Passover? How God used Moses to lead his people out? They're looking back on Moses saying, maybe another one will come like him. They see Jesus provide bread from heaven for thousands of Israelites, and they make the right connection. Maybe this is the prophet we've been waiting for. They want to make him king right there. He's the one. Let's go. It's time. But as we've seen already, Jesus said, it's not the hour yet, not the right time. So he gets away. Slips out from the crowd. His disciples don't know where he is. They got to get home, back to home base in Capernaum. So they cross the sea. They get in the boat. They head over. There's uh, choppy water, wind raging. That doesn't really scare disciples who are used to uh, the waters. They're fishermen. They're experienced. What scares them is the dude walking on water next to them. Uh, that's what's frightening. I think Mark, in his account, notes that they thought they saw a ghost. And as we know from horror movies, ghosts are scary. And they were frightened by this man walking on the water. It's an incredible miracle. We might be able to float on water. You know, some of us are more buoyant than others. But we can spread out and lie back and float, right, as our 
weight or mass is distributed. But that is different than taking a step where all your weight is concentrated. The water is not dense enough to carry a concentrated weight on the step. But that's what Jesus does. He breaks the laws of physics and walks on water, showing that he does not submit to nature, but nature submits to him. Jesus does not submit to the laws of physics. He's the one who upholds the universe by his power. So it's not hard for him to walk on water. And it seems like he walks the whole way. The, what's the shortest distance between two points? You geometry people, straight line. It seems that that's what Jesus has done. He's walked a straight line back home to Capernaum because he, the text says by the time he got in the boat with him, they were already at the edge of the water. So it, instead of walking all the way around the sea, Jesus had just walked straight across the sea. By the time they met up with them, they were already there. Moses, by God's power, split the water. Jesus just walked across it. Both of these signs showing us who Jesus is. As John says, these signs are performed that we may believe that Jesus is the Messiah of God. He feeds thousands miraculously. He walks on water to show who he is, the Savior the Messiah. Those miracles, and particularly the provision of bread, set up the discourse that will happen now. Jesus is going to dialogue. The people weren't able to find him, but now they are able to find Jesus and crowd around him and ask him questions. So it sets up this dialogue. I'm going to give you four titles, uh, ways to summarize this discourse that takes place between verses 22 to 71. In your Bibles, it might be called the bread of life discourse. That's kind of what it's popularly called, the bread of life discourse. How I would summarize these verses in the whole chapter is in the summary statement, only God can give the true faith we need for eternal life in Jesus. If you want to summarize this whole chapter in one way, it's kind of a lengthy statement, but in three parts, here's how I would summarize it. This is what I think Jesus teaches over the course of this dialogue. Only God can give the true faith we need for eternal life in Jesus. Maybe a shorter way to say that is Jesus alone gives life and God alone gives Jesus. Now here's the fourth way I would describe this. You've heard of the book how to win friends and influence people. This is the opposite. This is how to make enemies and lose followers. That's what Jesus does over the course of this dialogue. And as it goes along, he offends people even more and more and loses followers along the way. This is the anti-church growth discourse of Jesus. How to make enemies and lose followers. If you want to know the game plan for shrinking a church... Jesus shows us the way. Let's get into it. In this, I'm going to break it up into five sections, each around ten verses or so. We'll break it up into five sections, and there'll be five truths that I think Jesus teaches, kind of all under that summary of only God can give the true faith we need for eternal life in Jesus. Here's the summary statement. Here's five truths that Jesus teaches along the way. First, in verses 22 through 29, what we learn is that faith is our necessary work. I'll unpack what that means. Faith is our necessary work. This is the one thing we must do, believe. Look at verse 22. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there, and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but they had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils 
but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed a seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? And Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So after feeding all of them, the crowds are going crazy. They're following Jesus. They want to know where he is. They are, he has a rabid fan base at this point, not unlike Taylor Swift. There's your perfunctory Taylor Swift reference for the day. I'm sure you'll never hear about her again for the next 24 hours. They're seeking after him. Why are they seeking after him? And Jesus knows their hearts. He knows why they're going after him. It's not because of some theological, spiritual reason. You wanted food. Not the worst reason in the world, but not the best. He said, you're working for food that spoils. Jesus is going to challenge them to think a little higher, to think not about earthly things, even as necessary as food. Jesus is saying, you have to think about something different. What are you actually looking for? What are you working for? Here's a question for us. What are we spending our time on? What are we uh, focused on with our lives? What fills our calendar? What are we seeking? Why do we work all those hours? To earn a bigger paycheck? Are we after wealth? What is it that we're after? Jesus wants it to be about spiritual health, so he's going to teach us about eternal life. Seek spiritual food above all else, food that the Son of Man gives by the Spirit. So they pick up on what Jesus is saying. Okay, we don't want to be about earthly food. We want to be about spiritual health. So they ask a question, what do we got to do? And notice the way they ask it. What must we do to do the works God requires? What work of ours must we do to find the spiritual life? Uh, is it the law? And that's what they're thinking. Under the law, as given by God, the commandments he's given, what kind of obedience is required of us to have spiritual health in life? How do you think Jesus might respond? Well, if you just follow the Ten Commandments, you'll have spiritual health in life. If you obey the words of God, if you do that work, then you will have spiritual life. Is that how Jesus answered? How's he answered? The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Here's the work that's required. Faith. Belief. It's the work of the thief on the cross next to Jesus. It's the only work you can do when your hands are literally tied. What work was that thief able to do the only thing he could do, tied up as he was, about to meet the end of his life, the only act of obedience available to him, have faith in the one next to him and believe that he's done the work for me. That's it. It's the one work necessary. Faith. Have faith and you will have life. It's what Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. You know these couple of verses. I think in many ways these two verses are a summary. I'm not sure if that was Paul's point, but they happen to be a summary of what Jesus teaches in John 6. It says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is, a, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Faith is our necessary work. That's the first truth from the discourse. Second, verses 30 to 40 Faith is our necessary work. Second, Jesus is the life God sent. Jesus is the life God sent. He is the bread of life, as we'll see. Look at verse 30 with me. So they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. 
Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he is, those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. Jesus asked them to believe. If you want to live, you want to have spiritual life, believe in me. So they want to ask, uh, what sign do you give? Which is, honestly, I've been wrestling with this. I can't figure out why they asked for a sign. They just got a big one. I've been trying to think, why? Like, if you got a better answer, I'm open to hearing it. I don't have one. But they asked for a sign. And they go back to Moses and say, Moses gave us bread. Moses gave us bread from heaven. So what's your sign? I don't know. Anyways. Jesus corrects them and says, you know, it wasn't Moses that gave you the bread, right? You know where that bread came from. It was God, my Father, who gave you the bread. It's he who gives life. You'll find it in him. And, and they say, give us this bread always. Now, here's a interesting. Why do they say always? Not just give us this bread. They say, give us this bread always. Why do they insert that word in the, in the question or the command or the request? Give us this bread always. What's the best meal you've ever had? You might be able to think of one. Maybe, maybe it was just a peanut butter and jelly sandwich after you were really hungry, and that did it. Whatever the best meal you ever had is, and have that in your mind. Now let me ask a follow-up question. Why did you stop, or why didn't you stop there? Why did you eat again? If that was the best meal, why didn't you just say, well, that's it? Doesn't get any better, never eating again. Why did you eat again afterwards? This is not a trick question. It's because you got hungry. No matter how good a meal you have, at some point, you're going to get hungry again. This is the problem with food. This is the problem with all material things. I'll be real vulnerable here for a second. Some of you may collect things. I'm a big nerd and I like to collect transformers. If you've been to my house, you know. And you could ask, how many is enough? Those of you who collect things, how many is enough? One more. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's the correct answer. Whatever it is you collect. How many Super Bowl titles is enough? There isn't enough. One more. This is the way material things work. Even food, the most basic. We always need more. So they're saying, hey, we had miraculous bread. We had a great meal. We need more, so give it to us always. Keep giving it to us. And they're, I think, actually just really thinking about bread. We're going to keep going hungry, so give us bread. So how does Jesus respond? I am the bread of life. It's not just that Jesus gives bread. He is the bread. He is the bread of life. And those who have him will never be hungry again. You don't need to... Hope you understand this in the right way. You don't need to keep having it. I mean, we always want to be united to Jesus, but it's once you have it, once you have Jesus, you don't need any more. You have the bread of life. And once you have Jesus, you'll never not have Jesus. That's what he's saying here. You'll notice he, he's going to keep repeating this phrase, and I will raise them up on the last day. That's repeated over and over in this discourse. Why does he keep saying that? Because once you have Jesus, there is a one-to-one -one correlation. Those who have Jesus, those who have met him and know him and have received true life and true faith, they will be raised up on the last day. There's a one-to-one -one correlation. He will not lose anybody along the way. 
they will receive eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day, which is a way of saying they'll have life in the beginning, as soon as they have me, and they'll have life everlasting. And how do we know Jesus will keep them? How do we know Jesus will hold people? That once he has them, he's not going to let them go. Because that's the mission God gave him. And I'm pretty sure Jesus is going to succeed at the mission God gave him. If he didn't succeed in the mission God gave him, that would mean he was incompetent, not able to do it, or disobedient. I don't like either of those options. I believe Jesus is competent, able, powerful, and obedient to the Father to carry out the will of God. And the will of God is that all who receive life in Jesus will be raised on the last day. That's the mission that God sent Jesus on. To be the bread of life. That whoever eats it never loses it and never goes hungry again has life forever. Jesus is the bread of life, the life God sent. Third, verses 41 to 51, and here's the third truth of this discourse. Life is given by God in Jesus. Life is given by God in Jesus. I'll unpack this, verses 41 to 51. At this, the Jews there began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. So as Jesus teaches... The Israelites, the Jewish people, start grumbling. Now again, does this sound familiar? Israelites grumbling after provision of bread. Should make some connections for us, right? It's just like the Israelites wandering in the desert who've been given manna from heaven and grumbling afterwards. It's happening all over again with the new and better Moses, Jesus, providing bread from heaven, and they're grumbling. Well, why are they grumbling? Because Jesus said, I am the bread from heaven. I am the one who came from heaven sent by God. And they're saying, no, you're from Mary and Joseph. My parents just so happened to be here today visiting. If I stood up here and said, I came from heaven, what they would say is, we know how you were born. We were there. We remember. You did not come from heaven. You came from us. You came from two earthly parents. Right? They're there saying, we know your parents. We know where you came from. For Jesus to say, I'm the one who came from heaven. I'm the one who gives life. That's, a, that's quite the claim. So they're grumbling and they're saying, this is blasphemous, really, that Jesus would say he is the one from heaven. So Jesus corrects them and says, no, actually, I am from heaven. In fact, God and I are quite connected. I'm the one God sent. And in fact, without God, you can't come to me at all. We are connected. You cannot get one without the other. You cannot have God the Father without Jesus, and you cannot have Jesus without God the Father. I think just about all of us in this room would agree with John 14, 6. This will come later. In John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. 
Would we all, does not everybody in the room agree that? No one comes to the Father except through Jesus. Jesus is the only way to the Father. Now, would we also agree that the reverse is true? The Father is the only way to Jesus. So that's what Jesus is teaching here. Not only is Jesus the only way to the Father, but the Father, God, and his power, and his help, and his drawing and calling is the only way to Jesus. You cannot come to faith in Jesus Christ and to know him and believe in him unless God does the work of giving you faith. That's what Jesus is saying. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up on the last day. Whoever the Father draws to believe and put their faith in Jesus will be raised on the last day. You can't do it without his help. If they receive this call, they won't go hungry, they won't thirst, they'll be raised, they'll have eternal life. And they will know who God is. Because who is Jesus? He is the revealer of God. The Old Testament was teaching all about God. The prophets taught all about God. And now Jesus has been sent to show who God is. You can't have one without the others. So Jesus invites all to come and eat his flesh. I'm the bread of life. I'm the one sent by God. So come, eat my flesh. He is the life we must consume. Life is given by God in Jesus. He calls all to come eat his flesh, which is going to spark some more controversy as we see in verses 52 to 59. Tracking with me? 52 to 59, the fourth truth. Third, life is given by God in Jesus. And fourth, the fourth truth, life is received by faith in Jesus. That's what Jesus is saying here. Life is received by faith in Jesus. He says this in a really weird way, but that's what Jesus is saying. Life is received by faith in Jesus. Look at verses 52 to 59 with me. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. So Jesus continues to teach. And the Jewish people get more and more angry with him. They're grumbling even more. Why are they bad now? Well, first he said he was basically divine, sent by God. Now he's telling them, eat my flesh. And generally speaking, throughout human history, cannibalism has been frowned upon. Not universally, but generally speaking. In most civilized societies, there are laws against such things. In Israel, there were laws against cannibalism. In fact, to touch a corpse would make you unclean, unfit for worship, but ceremonially unclean. So when Jesus says, come eat my flesh, this is highly offensive. He says it in the synagogue. In the extension of God's house, in the synagogue, he says, eat my flesh. Partake in cannibalism. This is a great way to lose followers. In fact, as Jesus teaches this, his elders would be starting to pick up the phone and call and write emails and say, you've got to stop this. Our, our membership is shrinking. People don't understand what you're saying. 
you're not being clear, this is not good for our community. They're already offended. So what does Jesus do? Does he make it more clear, more understandable, smooth things over because he doesn't want to offend? Or does he just keep leaning into it and driving them further into offense? He keeps leaning into it. He talks more about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. So what in the world is he talking about? Some have looked at this and made the connection to communion and say, oh, maybe he's saying you have to take communion. Is that what Jesus is saying? The thief on the cross did not have an opportunity to take communion. So I'm pretty sure Jesus is not saying, only if you take communion, then you will have eternal life. It's not what he's getting at. Communion will look back on this teaching, but this isn't talking about communion here. They wouldn't have any context for that yet. It hadn't been instituted. So Jesus is not saying, if you take communion, then you'll have eternal life. That's not what he's saying. What is he saying? Look at verse 54. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. Now look back at verse 40. Go backwards a little bit. It'll sound similar. Everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I'll raise them up at the last day. Compare those two verses side by side, verses 54 and 40. What does it mean to eat the flesh of Jesus and to drink his blood? Verse 40 tells us to look to him and believe faith, to believe in Jesus Christ, to be united to him by faith, is to, metaphorically speaking, eat his flesh, drink his blood. So here's the question. Why does Jesus use such metaphorical language, offensive language? And the more he goes along in this dialogue with leaders, the more he uses this offensive language of eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Why does he do that? Instead of making it more clear, he makes it more obscure, harder to follow. Why? I think, this will lead into the last section, I think Jesus is making a point, as he often does with his ministry and his teaching. You're going to need help to understand me. Jesus speaks in parables, in metaphors, in offensive language, and things that are hard to understand to prove that it's hard to follow him. It's, in fact, impossible to understand him without help. And he is going to demonstrate who is able to understand him and who isn't. And he's going to keep speaking in harder, more difficult to understand language to drive a wedge to cause division between those who have God's ability to hear him and understand him and those who don't. It's exactly what happens here. Jesus makes things hard to accept on purpose to show that only those who have help from God will truly believe because we need help from God. We can't understand it on our own. By our own power, we can't get this, but if God helps, we can. Which leads in the last 11 verses Faith is the gift of God. The fourth truth, life is given by God in Jesus. The fifth truth, and the final truth here, faith is the gift of God. If we are to believe, it must be God's gift. Look at verse 60 with me. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who could accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, 
This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. And then Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is the devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, though one of the twelve, was later to betray him. So after all this teaching, many of Jesus' disciples are offended. They don't understand it, so they walk away from him. And Jesus says, oh, you think this is bad, just wait. It's a super comforting answer. You think what I have now is offensive? Wait until you see the Son of Man ascend, which I think is Jesus referring to both the cross and the resurrection and ascension. Wait until you see the Son of Man lifted up. Wait until you see this one who is saying to you, I am the bread of life, I am life itself. Wait until you see that life crucified. Wait until you see the Messiah bloodied and executed on a cross. That'll be scandalous. Wait until you see that same bloody Messiah resurrected and ascended on power and on high. Wait until that moment. If this is hard to accept, greater things are coming. And Jesus is preparing them. He knows some won't accept it. He knows not all will believe. Why? Because the spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. Only God can give life. On your own, on your flesh, in your own power, you can't accept this. Only God can help you. So Jesus says again, no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. He's making this point over and over. This difficulty of following Jesus can only happen by the power of God. So some walk away. Jesus turns to the disciples and said, okay, now you guys. There's the large group of disciples, large numbers, but now he's turning to the 12 specifically. His inner circle says, what about you guys? Some have left. How about you? How does Peter respond? He makes a great confession. Where else can we go? You're the only one who gives life. You're the only ones who have, you're the only one who has the words of eternal life. We know who you are, Jesus. You are the Holy One of God, which is a great confession, but Jesus still corrects him a little bit, doesn't he? How does Jesus correct Peter? Peter is saying, on behalf of the disciples, Jesus, we know. We have come to believe. We have come to know. Peter's placing a whole lot of emphasis or a whole lot of trust in their ability to know Jesus. We have come to know. And Jesus says, don't you forget who called you. The only reason you have that ability to know, I called you first. I'm the one who drew you out. That's why you can know. It's not a full correction. It's just a, a slight, here's something else you need to remember. That ability you have to know who I am is given by Jesus and by God himself. That's why one of them will betray Jesus. Have you ever thought about this? Last note on the text itself. How in the world did Judas betray Jesus? How in the world did Judas not fully believe by the end? How is that possible? What did Judas, Judas see and experience? Everything all the other disciples saw and experienced. All the miracles, all the teaching, all the graciousness, all the hard sayings, the easy sayings, the life and death of Jesus, Judas saw it all. Did anybody have a better spiritual upbringing than Judas? Did anybody have a better seminary experience than Judas? Was anybody better taught? Judas had the best teacher, shepherd, pastor, professor you could ever ask for. 
So why did he not have faith in the end? Because it doesn't matter the context unless God draws, unless God gives faith, you will not believe. It doesn't matter how good the school. Faith is a gift that God must give. Only God can give the true faith we need for eternal life in Jesus. All right, close it out here. I just want to give three truths about Christ, three application points. We'll go through this quickly. What do we do with all this? Long discourse, a lot of truth in there about who Jesus is. What do we do with it? What do we know? What do we take away from it? Here's the first truth I want to pass on to you, just for you to consider. Eternal life requires faith in Christ, very simply. Eternal life requires faith in Christ. If we are to have eternal life, we must believe, we must have faith. As we said earlier, that is our necessary work. The one thing we must do, the one work we must have, we must believe. Faith is required. So I'll ask you, are you pursuing it? Like, what does your calendar reflect? Is it the thing that you know you need above all else? I'm sure you have plans to eat. I do too. I'm sure you have plans to sleep. I do as well. Why these things are necessary. What is more foundational than that? What is more necessary than even food and rest? More foundational, more necessary is belief and faith. So what are you doing to foster that? To pursue faith. That is the one thing that is required. Faith in Christ. Do you believe? Eternal life requires faith in Christ. Second, God is the source of faith in Christ. God is the source of faith in Christ. That's where it comes from. It's who it comes from. Faith comes from God. We could spend a whole a lot of time unpacking that. We won't. But just a couple things to consider. If God is the source of faith in Christ, then Jesus' ability to save rests on God. It's very comforting. The success of Jesus' mission on the cross does not rest on some flimsy hope that maybe somebody's going to believe this someday. Jesus didn't walk the earth, live a perfect life, be condemned to death, and resurrect and ascend on a hope and a prayer that maybe some of these fickle people will believe. He was executed on the cross for our sins with the sure and certain fact that some will believe because God is the one who makes it happen. He is resting on God's certainty to save, not our ability to believe. Now, here's a comfort for you, especially you parents. So I've talked to a number of you. Maybe you've had children go wayward. Friends go wayward. Siblings go wayward. They said they were raised in the church. We did everything right. This isn't the way we raised them. Why are they not believing? It's God's work to save. It's God's work to give faith. It's not yours. You never had the power or the ability to impart faith to another person. When your kids believe, do you take credit for it? Oh, that was all me. When your kids don't believe, do you take blame? Certainly we could all do it better. But in the end, ultimately, it is God's work to give faith. You cannot provide a better spiritual environment than Jesus provided and yet one walked away. It's God's work. Which leads us to the last truth. Some will abandon faith in Christ. This is what we see all throughout this chapter. People walked away from Jesus. So some will abandon faith in Christ. From God's perspective... Theologically, eternally, everybody who comes to true faith will be raised on the last day. And God knows who are his. And all those who are his, Jesus won't lose, and they will be raised. 
from a human perspective, we don't know God's mind. We don't know other people's hearts and minds. So we're going to see people who looked like they were believing and walked away. Happens here in John 6. It'll happen in life. Some will abandon faith in Christ. So what do we do? Three real quick points of application. Pray God gives true faith in life. If it's God's work to give true faith and true life, the best work we can do is pray that God gives it. So let's be a praying church. The praise that God gives life. Second, thank God for true faith in life. If it's his work to give it, if Jesus is the bread of life, then praise him that he sent his son to be the life for us. And lastly, a word for non-believers, or a word to some of you, maybe you're not sure where you stand with Jesus. Ask God for true faith and life. If you're not sure about Jesus, if you're not sure about his words, if you don't know where you stand with him or with God, the invitation of this passage to you Ask God for true faith and life. Jesus says, all who come to me, I will never drive away. If you come to Jesus and ask for life, he will give it to you because he's the bread of life. And all who come to him will never thirst, never go hungry again. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that your son doesn't just give bread, but is bread. That he doesn't just give life for us, he is life for us. And that you give that life. And if it were dependent on us, we'd never receive it. If it were dependent on us, we'd never seek it. If it were dependent on us, um, Lord, we'd be hopeless. So we thank you that you draw people you call people to come and see you are good that in your son is life. And we pray, Lord, that you would draw more. Use our church, our homes, our lives, our ministries, our gifts. Use all of us, Lord, to give you praise and glory and to draw people to you. And we praise you, Lord. Amen.